news, the beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April Fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live, cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar, and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A agent. I hope to see you there. there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. We'll be kicking off today's episode with our usual Books with Hooks segment, after which we'll go to today's guest. Hi everyone, welcome back to another Books with Hooks. For our new listeners, if you would like to submit your work for consideration for Books with Hooks, please go to our website, theshitaboutwriting.com, go to the Books with Hooks tab and scroll through there. It'll give all the information you need. You'll put in all of your information and you'll upload your work and just be aware that we're about two months behind. So if you do submit your work today, you'll probably only potentially hear from us in two months time and we're only able to reply to those whose work has been selected but we do update the website to tell you what date we're working on and if your work wasn't selected you are absolutely welcome to revise and resubmit so that's how you get on the show okay as per usual we're going to dive straight in cc will you kick us off with the first query letter absolutely dear carly cc and bianca Thank you so much for all the information you share on the shit no one tells you about writing. It has been invaluable in my growth as a writer. I was thrilled to hear Cameron Kelly Rosenblum on a recent episode as her latest novel is one of my comps. Please find my query letter word count 309 below. Katie Dickerson. Dear agent, space for personalization. Complete at 75,000 words. Not here, not now. 
is a work of YA contemporary fiction with mystery elements. It is perfect for fans of Cameron Kelly Rosenblum's The Sharp Edge of Silence and Kit Frick's Very Bad People. When Callie orchestrates a hookup strike to protest the football team's hazing, she expects pushback. Penwin Academy guys aren't used to having their sexist traditions challenged after all, but she never anticipated their passive act of resistance would devolve into a school-wide civil war or to culminate in an attack on a football player. As the prime suspect, Callie needs to discover the truth behind the attack, and she needs to do it fast before police unearth the secret reason she demanded a peaceful protest in the first place. Callie has hurt someone before. In search for the real perpetrator, Callie makes two unnerving realizations. First, the football team's power and influence extend far beyond Penguin Academy. Worse, what she can prove might not be as important as who she knows. Like Callie, I'm bisexual and neurodivergent. Emotional dysregulation has been a challenge for me throughout my life, and I hope the representation in this manuscript will help readers feel less alone in their struggles. My writing has been featured in the online literary publications Five on the Fifth and Reservoir, and I have published nonfiction articles and book chapters on topics thematically related to Callie's story. I am active in SCBWI and a local critique group. In June of 2021, I was chosen for a hashtag queer lit mentorship and worked with Maxine Kaplan, author of The Accidental Bad Girl and Wench, to revise this manuscript. When not writing, I teach high school English and co-advise my school's GSA. I live with my partner in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Not Here, Not Now is my debut novel. Sincerely, Katie Dickerson. Awesome, Cece. Thank you. Wow, I really like that title. I don't know about you, but let's hear what you've got to say, Cece, and then we'll throw it across to Carly. I really like the title too. Plot paragraph, because that is, of course, my obsession. I don't know if it's intentional, but attack on a football player felt vague to me. Like, what what kind of attack are we talking about? I, I felt like I really wanted to know. And since it seems to happen quite early in the story, I think it's fair for us to understand that. There's also the question of the mystery she is going to solve the truth behind the attack as is written in the query letter. Is it that no one knows who it is? Or is it that everyone is believing one person did it when actually someone else did it? Or is it an entirely different thing plot-wise? I guess I'm wondering if she's looking for the truth, what is the untruth that she's trying to combat? Is it a mystery? Like, I'm just not sure on, on that. In terms of the major dramatic question, I do think it's good, but it's not as dramatic as I think I would hope. How does her past come into play in the present conflict beyond the initial risk? Since it should escalate, I feel like the, you know, all the factors should come together. Who specifically is against her? Who is her ally or allies? Overall, it seems like a really, really interesting story and really interesting query. I'm just thinking that we can elevate the plot paragraph. Right now we have a lot on the author bio, which I love, by the way, excellent author bio, and not as much on the plot paragraph as I would have hoped. So that would be my note for you to just develop it a little bit more. And thank you for sharing. This is pretty interesting. You know, I think we're dealing with some pretty complicated concepts like gender roles and sexuality and power dynamics and a lot of things that I think are really, really interesting, especially to delve into at the Y level. So I think there's, there's a lot going on here. I totally flagged the attack as well as something we kind of need to figure out. So 
how serious hospitalization, like there's just so many things in terms of like the level of the attack where I think we just really need to understand more about it. We need more context. We need more specifics. I think it's a classic case of this person not wanting to overtell so that there's something to be left for, you know, know, it's a mystery. But, you know, as a reminder, we can't get to the pages unless we are hooked by the query. So the job is to do the hooking now so that we can move our way to the pages and, and get excited about those. So, yeah, I would definitely be adding a lot more specifics there. Thank you, Carly. Okay, Cece, can you give us an indication of what's in those opening pages? So the protagonist is hanging out with her boyfriend at the student center. He's helping her study. She's worried about upcoming college meetings. When he has to go, they hug goodbye and she picks up a different scent in him, but she decides not to say anything about it right there and then because there are too many people watching. Then she tries to study by herself, but her mind wanders and she's distracted by a noise. She goes to check it out and it's a girl whose name she can't remember at first moving boxes. So she helps her out and this girl says, hey, there's this article you might want to check out. And back at her seat to study, she does check the article out and realizes that, so the article is all about renovations at the school, that the auditorium will not, or at least there is no nothing on the auditorium's renovation. And so she texts her friend. And when she sees the picture of, of the pool that has been renovated, she feels the wind knocked out of her. And because there's no blood on the picture, no parents in horror. And anyway, she tries to get out of her head and... Is, is really struggling to do that. She says that she wishes she could be with her best friend or her boyfriend, but most of all, she wishes she wouldn't be pulled into the past. Thank you, Cece. What I loved about this piece is we had some really great curiosity seeds there, and I'm seeing this more and more in our submissions coming through. So you guys are really getting the curiosity seeds. Well done. Okay, so Cece, your take on that, please. I also noted that, and I actually highlighted one example and just wrote a little note to the writer to say, like, this is a really good curiosity seed. Thank you for this, because it's so subtle, yet you can't miss it because she isolated the sentence. So it was really, really well done. I also love that we weren't seen all the time. I love that there was movement and there was a lot of clarity on that movement. Like, I always knew where she was. I liked that when she was talking to her boyfriend, she left things unsaid. And that's really important because, you know, we're getting her her deeper self in in her mind. I do think there's room for even more. I thought that there was a little bit of emotionality missing when it comes to sharing it with the reader. There were a few moments that I highlighted that I said, you know, how is she feeling about this? Everything from her ambition in terms of drama, that is something that I did not, by drama, I mean theater. That was something that took a while for me to realize it. And there were no sharp specifics on it. There was no depth to it. Like if this is her dream, I want more on her dream. I want more on her ambition. And also things like, so when she does pick up the different scent on her boyfriend and decides not to say anything, is it because she doesn't trust him? Because if so, then we should get emotionality on that. We should get emotionality on you know, the doubt she's always felt or or rumors she's heard or I don't know, something, right? Like I, do, I kept wanting more, which is a really good sign. Even things like, for example, he had already been recruited by college when when he was where she is now. He's older than she is. And she mentions this, but I'm like, where are the messy emotions? Does she feel in awe of him? Does she feel envious? Does she feel resentful, scared, confused? Like, I just wanted more emotions. Also, when it comes to the the part where she's looking at the picture of the pool, and then immediately she she gets the wind knocked out of her. That's a direct quote from from the piece. You know, we get her, we get a line that says that she does not see blood and does not see parents' faces in horror. And 
to me, that calibration felt off. It wasn't until I finished reading the pages that I understood that that's where her mind went in terms of a memory. For a while, I was like, is she seeing things? I guess I was just confused. I would make that extra clear. I would make it extra clear that it's a flashback because it just didn't, like the, the, the way it's currently written, it was just confusing for me. Overall, I thought this was really good and I really like the premise of it. I really like her as a protagonist, which I think is important. And yeah, and thank you for sharing. Thank you, Cece. Okay, Carly, your thoughts? All right. So one thing jumped out at me right away that I'll that I'll kind of focus on. So we open, it says chapter one. It says, I can't do this by myself, but Lucas already shut his laptop. He closes his copy of Lysistrata, the one he had bought to help me with my English homework, and slips it into his backpack. Okay, I've never heard of this text, whatever this text was. I go to look up the text, and I'll tell you what this text is about. Carly, I'm shocked you've never heard of Liz Estrada. I realize this is me. I've never heard of anything saying this. But it's Liz Estrada. <laughs> I have never no. heard of it either. Guys, so I be English. No one I else will... studied this. <laughs> this is the thing. I spoke English my whole life and there's so much that I don't know. So I'm going to recount this for the listeners if there's anybody else who doesn't know Liz Estrada. The story of an Athenian woman who is determined to end the Peloponnesian War. She does so by recruiting the women of both Sparta and Athens, the main rivals in the war, to her cause. They come up with a clever way to get the men to stop fighting. There will be no sex until there is peace. So, Cece, if you knew this, then you would know that the premise of this novel is entirely based around this text. But this was never pitched to us as a retelling or an inspired by a Greek myth, which I just thought, or, you know, a story from ancient times. So this is very interesting to me. To me, this is kind of like, wouldn't this be part of the pitch? Isn't this something that's kind of missing, Cece? I didn't see it as a retelling. Like, there's nothing in the query letter that says they're going to withhold sex from boys. No, but but it, it, it talks about a civil war within the school yeah, as of different but, factions. So this feels like foretelling or yeah, foreshadowing of what's yeah, going to But not come. a retelling. I didn't see it as that far at all. Maybe it is. Maybe I just missed it. Well, yeah. maybe not. Maybe it says a hookup strike. She organizes. Oh, a I missed strike. that. See, that was just meaning. Me yeah. Yeah. So then to me, that's a huge hook opportunity that we're missing here to focus on. Again, you don't need to spell everything out at all. And I'm just so curious about why you didn't include this in your query letter. Because not to say that. I mean, maybe this author, again, I'm totally projecting, maybe this author thinks that retellings are maybe a little bit passe, or they haven't, you know, been seeing as many of them lately, so didn't want to focus on the fact that this is potentially a modern retelling. But this isn't like a Cinderella retelling where we've seen like a million. So I totally think this is a missed opportunity for a hook here uh, to integrate this a little bit more clearly into the query letter. So that totally stood out to me. Again, I did not study ancient history, clearly. I do not have the depth of knowledge that Cece does, so I had no idea about this text. So, And I'm just assuming, again, that there will be listeners or readers or potential agents and editors that don't know it either. So that was my note on that. My only other note, you know, from a line level sense is that I... I sometimes have mixed feelings about reading YA, trying to interpret, like, is this how kids talk? Does it need to be how kids talk? You know, how natural does it need to be? Obviously, this is a book, so we need some formality. But the way that teens speak is just, like, sometimes completely something we can't interpret into a textual format just because of the colloquialisms or, you know, the terminology, the phrases, the slang. So... I felt like some of the kind of infusion of teenness in this book was kind of around these really choppy sentences. 
And it tripped me up a little bit, you know, for example, I'm still on the first page here. We say there's some dialogue. Sorry, Cal, but it's almost four. Then somebody else says, oh, right. Wait room time, period. You know, it's a lot of this like noun, period. You know, there's another time there. It just says like unlikely, period. So I don't know. I think it's, I think it's a stylistic choice. I think it's going to work for some people. I think it maybe won't work for others. So I'm just, you know, flagging that tonally as something that is going to work for some people and might not for others. I just want to thank Carly for picking up the fact that this is a Liz Estrada retelling because I adore the fact that this is a Liz Estrada retelling. I am now obsessed with it. I don't rep YA, but please know that this seems like a brilliant idea to me. I sh- I missed it. You did nothing wrong. You say very clearly hookup strike. My brain is just slow. If you needed proof that an agent has an exhausted brain, there is your proof. What I will say is she seems very different from Liz Estrada in terms of interiority. Liz Estrada is very determined. She's the ringleader. That's good because that makes it different. However, Liz Estrada is very, very funny. Like it's a comedy. So I would up the humor unless that's not your intention. Just something to think about. But I am properly obsessed. And thank you so much, Carly, for picking that up. Right. Thank you so much for that. There are just two things as a writer that I would like to point out here. I have made extensive notes in the text for our Kofi supporters in terms of line level suggestions, but two big picture notes. One, so we have a whole page in a bit that is set up to our protagonist, Cal, sitting by herself. She then hears a dragging noise, which isn't very specific, a dragging noise right? And then she thinks she's imagining it, looks at other people, they aren't imagining it. Then she goes off walking quite far to then find this, you know, young woman that she doesn't know who's working through the school papers and she helps her with the boxes and all kinds of things. All of this just to get to the point where they have a conversation where this Maggie tells her that, you know, tells Cal that her boyfriend is mentioned in the school paper and to mention some of these articles. And, you know, there are ways to get somewhere faster. You could have Cal sitting by herself at this table and Maggie happens to walk past balancing all the school papers in her arms and she drops one. And as Cal reaches over to help her pick it up, they start chatting and Maggie's like, oh, by the way, your boyfriend is mentioned in this. Then you cut out a whole page to get your character from one place to the next just to set us up for that tiny little discussion, especially in opening pages where one whole page of moving your character, where they're hearing a strange noise just so that they can have that one conversation doesn't feel very expedient. So that's something I want to mention to this writer and to all writers. How can we get our characters to the place faster? How can we have things unfolding in a more organic, quick way? And then this person has chosen to write in the present tense, which is wonderful because there's immediacy in the present tense. So let me give you an example here. With a kiss on the forehead, Lucas pulls away, taking all his thunder jacket security with him. But then have a look in the next sentence. Eva planned to replace Lucas. He'd head to the gym and she'd pick up on the very next line. She promised to help me study for the quiz, vowed that she'd do anything to make sure I'm allowed on the theater trip, and she's endured enough about Mr. Stevens' weird permission slip power trip to know he's serious, not just from me either. The man's reputation precedes him. But after five evilless minutes, I resign myself to solo reading. Now, have a look. That takes away all the immediacy that you get from the present tense because 
this character has already jumped into the future and is preparing us for the fact that Eva doesn't arrive by saying the plan was for her to replace Lucas and then only after you tell us she didn't arrive. So rewrite all of that for it to be the plan is for Eva to replace Lucas. He'll head to the gym. She'll pick up on the next line. She promised, blah, 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 but after five evilless minutes passed. So, you know, we write things in past tense so that we have the value of hindsight and we can foreshadow things. We write things in the present tense so that there's immediacy, which means this character would not know, as she's telling us, that Eva is not going to pitch up in a few minutes' time. We need to experience her waiting for Eva and then have Eva not arrive. You can't have it both ways, the immediacy and then the hindsight that you get with past tense. Alrighty, now we're going to go to Carly. Will you read us Rachel's query letter? Dear Carly, based on your interest in women's fiction and well-paced narratives, you'll love Pardon Me. Complete at 85,000 words, Pardon Me will appeal to readers who enjoy Things You Save in a Fire by Catherine Center and Part of Your World by Abby Jimenez. Kelsey Taylor always blamed herself for her mother's imprisonment. 18 years later, as a freshly barred Pennsylvania lawyer, Kelsey is ready to take on her mom's case and mend what she destroyed. So far, everything's going to plan. Kelsey's boyfriend, a law school classmate, has the connections to expedite her mother's release timeline. And after she signs the paperwork, they're flying to Jamaica to celebrate passing the bar. But when her mother suspiciously refuses to sign and her boyfriend turns out to have a second girlfriend, Kelsey's careful plans threaten to implode. She rewrotes her trip and decides to use the alone time to develop Plan B. In Barbados, Kelsey doesn't find clarity, but she does find the handsome and annoyingly optimistic Elias Martin. Their chemistry is undeniable, and Kelsey uncharacteristically falls into a flirtatious island fling. After finally allowing herself a little rum-fueled fun, she gets a call that explains her mother's suspicious behavior. She has cancer. Back home in Franklin Port, Pennsylvania, the clock is on for Kelsey to get her mom out of prison, create a livable home, and arrange quality treatment. Nothing will stop her, not even the distraction of her new client, Elias. Kelsey can't risk jeopardizing work or her mom's case, and so she and Elias agree to stay friends. Elias helps Kelsey remodel for her mom's homecoming, and Kelsey helps Elias dig up information on his late estranged father. In the process, they find the spark from Barbados still burns, and they also discover an unforgivable connection from their pasts. The revelation threatens to destroy both their chances of being together and Kelsey's mom's chances of being released from prison. They must decide if they're able to pardon the past or lock away their feelings forever. I live, work, and write in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I have a bachelor's of science in mathematics and a master's in business administration. This is my debut novel. For your guidelines, the first five pages are below. May I send you the full manuscript? Thank you, Rachel Tryon. Awesome, Carly. Thank you. Okay, did we get a word count there or no? I summarized it for us and we come in at 385 words. Awesome. What was your take on the rest of it? You know, I I find this one quite interesting because... I'm so curious about so much, you know, for example, why is the mother in prison? I don't feel like this is mentioned at all, which totally affects so much everything from how the daughter feels about the mom, how the mom feels about herself, how the reader is supposed to feel about the mom. I feel so neutral about the fact that this mother's in prison, which I shouldn't. It's like, oh, this mother's just like 
in another city or another country. And like, you know, she goes to visit her from time to, I don't know. There's just like such a detachedness to the fact of not knowing anything around the reasons for this. Like there's a huge difference between like tax fraud and murder. (laughs) Do you know what I'm trying to say? Like massive, massive difference in terms of like emotionality about how the reader is supposed to feel about this. So the fact that I don't know worries me. I will say I'm worried a little bit. The fact that I don't know. Um, one thing I was curious about, and I think I scrolled down at some point when I was reading this for the first time was what experience does this writer have in knowing the law and knowing anything about lawyers? Because there's a couple things, again, I'm just not clear on the fact that she goes to another country, makes a friend and then wants to represent them as a client. Like what type of law is she practicing in terms of the company that she works for? What do they specialize in? Like all of these, there's a lot of specifics, like, you know, allowing herself some rum fueled fun. Like we have specifics, you know, the mom has cancer. We have specifics. So the absence of specifics and the things that I care about is concerning to me in this query letter a little bit, but it's really interesting. So I'm kind of like, huh, would I request this? Would I not? I don't know. I think ultimately, based on this query letter, I don't think I would request pages because of the points that I mentioned. There's just so much happening here where I'm like, what am I supposed to feel? How am I supposed to be directed into these into these feelings? Um, and, you know, I really want to know more about the relationship between the mother and the daughter, because I feel like this is a huge mother-daughter story. So the fact that she feels guilt, something she did caused her mother to go to jail and again is she covering up for a murder or is she just trying to like did she steal some things from the store do you know what i'm trying to say like huge huge interpretation opportunities here for things to just fall through the cracks so i think if this is sharpened up in a way that addresses some of these questions i think you're gonna have a really strong query letter i'm just a little bit worried that some of the specifics are focusing on the things that are a little bit less essential because for women for this to be women's fiction we need the romance to be a B plot, which means that the mother daughter relationship is the A plot essentially, or her career is the A plot. And we're ending on a lot of this relationship stuff, which makes me think, oh, is the relationship or love story more of a A plot or a B plot? So those are some of my questions. I think this is really interesting. The whole, you know, women incarcerated topic, super interesting to me. But yeah, I just thought I'd raise some of those issues. So this brings up an interesting topic for me because so here we are as writers. We are dropping the curiosity seeds. We are trying to make you as the reader turn pages. From reading the pages, it's my understanding that the reader not knowing why the mother is incarcerated is one of those curiosity seeds. It's meant to keep you turning pages so that you find out why. If that's the intentionality of the author in setting up the story, then how do they give specifics in the query letter without giving that away in terms of that being too much information there. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. So I think there's a huge difference between the query letter versus the pages. I think it's totally fine for the pages to be a bit more elusive about what the crime is. Absolutely. It's really just this query letter, you know, and I think I'll oftentimes and you know, when I teach my querying workshop, I usually take a query letter and then I show them my pitch And then I show them the finished jacket copy to kind of show this alignment between like, these are the things that people are going to care about from the beginning of the query letter stage to the jacket copy stage. And so in this case, I don't necessarily think that if you were to talk about what the crime is, it needs to make it to the jacket stage. But for the query stage, in terms of hooking somebody, I really think, and even if it's something, again, it can be like, 
broad buckets of crimes. You know what I'm trying to say? Like white collar crimes, financial crimes versus like violence crimes. You know what I'm trying to say? Like, I think we could bucket the crime here to give us some understanding of the severity. And again, how we are supposed to feel about it. And I don't think the pages need to spell out the crime by any means, but I do think the query letter needs to spell out the crime. Does it 100% need to spell that out? Or can they say something like, due to the tragic events on that, you know, I'm being over the top here, that fateful night 18 years ago when X led to Y without 100% giving away exactly what the mother did. So let's say the mother murdered someone in self-defense of the daughter. So instead of saying, you know, because her mother murdered someone to save her, she can say when her mother came to her defense on that tragic night, however many years ago, and the jury decided it was, you know, uh, I don't know, such a severe crime. Can they hint at that without exactly telling you? Because as if I was the author of this, this is where I'd be hanging up. How much do I say in the query letter to really get you interested while still as the author maintaining that not being a, a reveal to early on? So listeners, listen to how emotional what Bianca just said was. The fact that the mother put her life on the line, put her future on the line for her daughter. Think about how guilt-ridden that is. Think about how emotional it is. Like, I think that's totally accurate. Like, I am so much more emotionally connected to Bianca's projection than I am to the fact that her mother's imprisonment. Because... That's so factual, so cut and dry versus like the emotionality of because novels are about humans, right? They're about human connection and the reader's connection to the humanity of our characters. So, yes, I do think we can do between X meets Y type of, you know, dancing between the idea. But again, violence versus fraud versus, you know, all these other things. I, I definitely need to know the bucket. And I think that's a great example. Perfect. Thank you, Carly. OK, Cece, your thoughts? I really wanted to know if it was a wrongful conviction because that's where my brain went when I heard guilt. And maybe, you know, she couldn't save her mom because she was a child and that's why she became a lawyer. So that's why she wanted to, to get her mom out of prison. Love the idea of her having sacrificed herself for her daughter because that just ups the stakes even more. But but yeah, I guess, you know, my my own thoughts on this just just double down on the fact that we needed a little bit more emotionality on that. Another thing that kind of I got felt hung up on is the fact that Elias is her client. I would be okay with this if in Barbados she didn't know that he was already the firm's client and when she starts at the firm she is assigned to the case and then she has to like oops like what did I do like that would be fine for me but if it's a situation where he then like looks her up because he knows she's a lawyer and then they start working it just doesn't feel plausible to me because it's like you're just creating the conflict of why you can't be together and it's your own fault do you know what I'm saying like so that's that's another thing I wanted clarity on because I do feel like if it ends up that it's like, oh my gosh, and he is the firm's client, a big client at that, then it just becomes more dramatic and, and more interesting. Perfect, Cece. Thank you. Okay, Carly, what was in those opening pages? All right. So we start with our protagonist. We start with a timestamp of October 2022. Our protagonist is attending visiting hours to visit her mother. She's kind of waiting. She knows she has to go through the whole like rigmarole of them checking to make sure she doesn't have anything on her persons and anything like that. She's noticing they have a fish tank. It's really bothering her because she feels like she says, put lipstick on a pig is the, is the saying that she uses. She doesn't like waiting. All of these other people waiting for their visiting hours as well. There's a buzzer. 
the mom, you know, comes out, they're able to interact. They talk about what she's wearing, what her hair looks like. She thinks, oh, I need to put some money in my mom's account because she's noticing her shoes are a little bit worn and she needs something else. But the mother character talks about one of the other women in prison who wants to be a beautician when she gets out of there. So she's like practicing on people. And then the daughter says, isn't that person in for life? And then she goes, yeah, God, admire her hope. And so they keep talking about that. The daughter tells the mother that she passed the bar. She didn't want to kind of write to tell her mother. She wanted to tell her in person. So that's really exciting for them. And she says, I'm going to start working on my pro bono case, which is the case of her mother. And then the mom says, let's not get ahead of ourselves. And it seems to be like pushing off the idea that, you know, she needs to get out of prison. She says, I only have 20 years left only have 20 years left and then the daughter's pretty upset because she's like you know what are you talking about like that's our plan etc etc and that's where it ends dun 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 all right carly so what was your take on that okay so i have a lot of notes kind of about the interactions of our character in this setting because this is a very interesting setting somebody who's not in jail going to visit their mother in jail this is very interesting so i the first thing i noticed is some word choice. So she's saying like, I hate this part. I hate the nervous whispers. I thought hate was a very interesting word. It's a very jarring word. The word hate is a very jarring word. I also find it to be a little bit of a juvenile word because like, for example, my son, when he doesn't like dinner, it's like, I hate this. So I don't know, maybe I'm just hearing my four-year-old in my head, but hate is a very interesting word. So I don't know. I was like the double use of hate this part, hate the nervous whispers. Again, we're doubling down on a very forceful word. That's an interesting choice to me. Now she's sitting beside a husband. She says it's husband. Unlike the jittery husband to my right. How does she know this is a husband? Has she met this person before? Is this somebody also that visits, you know, at the same time and she knows them? Does he have a ring? I don't know. I thought that was so interesting. The jittery husband. It's like not partner. How did she know it was a husband? That's interesting to me. I like that she tries to interact with the visitation officer and like she's trying to, you know, pushes buttons a little bit and he just the line is he blinks period loved that I thought that was great I also thought if she has done this so many times before because it seems like she has a relationship with her mother I'm interested that she is startled by the loud buzzer and the metal doors crashing open I think there's an opportunity here like maybe it does startle her and she is surprised that she's startled for doing this for however many years she's visited her mother or I don't know. I just thought that was interesting. She was startled by it. Or it could be like, oh, I'm still startled every time. You know, I just think there's an opportunity there to build that familiarity if that is what we're doing. There's a line that says, I brush my hair with the same wide tooth comb I used as a 10 year old to replicate her gentle touch. That made me think that she was 10, that she was 10 years old. If she is not, if she was not 10 years old when this happened, I would like to know that at some point, I think in these early pages. But if she is 10 when this happens, I thought that was a really kind of like gentle dropping of information. And I thought that was really, really interesting. I also thought I'm, I'm always obsessed when characters talk about money because money is such a symbol for so many things, power dynamic, affluence, class, everything. So that when she goes, I'll put more money in her account tonight, at least $11.99 for some new slides. I loved that she knew how much the slides were I thought it was so interesting that like why would she potentially only put in 11.99 or 12 dollars or wouldn't there be an opportunity to be like now that I pass the bar now that I have a job I'm going to put in a hundred dollars like I don't know I just thought there was such a whenever we talk about money there's such an opportunity to really talk about class and power and, and everything like that so I just really would have wanted a little bit more information there about her relationship to money and her mother's relationship to money maybe she doesn't want to put money in there because she knows her mom isn't good with money and she doesn't want to put more money in than the slides because you know she only needs those sandals 
I thought that was interesting. I really liked the note about the friend of the mother wanting to go to beautician school. That was a really interesting detail. And the fact that even though she knows she's never going to get out, she's still obsessed with this idea. Super interesting to me. And then other than that, I really just need to know why she is in jail. I just need to know. I, I cannot get past this. And whether it's going to come on page 10, 50, I don't know, whatever that page is. So yeah, I don't know. I guess you hooked me in that sense because I need to know what this mother did. DM me, tell me what this mother did. And that's going to keep you turning pages, Carly. This is what we writers do, man. Okay, Cece, your take. What I think is super interesting about the setup is that she has two active emotions here. She has fear, right? The fear-based guilt, the fear of her mom seeing her mom in prison, the fear of not having her her mom in high-waist jeans, but rather her mom in, in a prison uniform. And she also has desire. She has the desire of getting her mom out, the desire that it's super close, the desire that she has good news. So so in terms of the setup, the author has a really interesting opportunity. What I think we need is just more depth to the emotions because we are being told certain things like I'm semi-relaxed and things like that. But I feel like it could be deeper, feel like it could be stronger. So for example, you know, is today the day where the excitement is actually matching the guilt for the first time in goodness knows how many years because she does have good news to impart. And I assumed the good news would be a surprise for the mom because I feel like that would be more impactful, but it doesn't seem like it is. It feels like it's something they've discussed, which is okay too if that's your choice, but then you're missing the opportunity to have her excited. Maybe the mom wouldn't know that it would be today. Maybe she would still still expecting it to be, I don't know, a couple months down the line. I, I kept wanting more depth because of how emotional this is. When she talks about the application, for example, you know, the application to the Bar of Pardons to commute your sentence, everything is here, you sign, I submit. We have movement, we have her sliding the folder uh, across the table, and we have the fact that she notices that the mom glances down but doesn't touch it, but there's no emotionality, like nothing. There's nothing like and again, I don't know what that would look like because you know her psychological makeup. I don't, but I wanted more. And again, a very good sign to want more. Thank you, Cece. Yeah, that was a lot of my feedback as well. You did interiority well, but I think interiority and emotionality need to be linked to reveal character. And there was a lot more emotionality that I wanted there as well. Right, Carly and Cece, thank you so much. For our listeners, we have been getting some amazing good news from you, which is wonderful. We want to hear your wins. We want to celebrate with you. So if you have good news, please go to our website, theshitaboutwriting.com. Go to the good news tab. There's details there of how to share it with us, but also go there to read each other's good news. You know, to see other people's wins after a long period of struggle, I think can be incredibly, incredibly motivating. So go there and take a look. All right, let's go to today's guest. My youngest son starts kindergarten this year. I can't believe it. One of the tricky things though about my kids being in French immersion school and me not having French as a language myself is worrying about how we're going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are very lucky though to live in Ottawa, which is a bilingual city of a million people. And we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So it's going to be really easy for our kids to pick it up at a young age through school and sports activities. But me, on the other hand, growing up where French class wasn't taken too seriously and we goofed off. I am so sorry, Madame Corrigan. We're going to have to make up the difference. And that is where Rosetta Stone comes in as the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. 
and it truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. Immersion is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio to audio from native speakers, and then gives you feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. You can really hone those pronunciations, which we know is key to sounding fluent. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program to get because they have been the expert for 30 years and used by millions, thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language learning training online. Of all the apps, it is the best at speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of native speakers. Rosetta Stone has a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent built into the program. So as you practice speaking, you're going to get your feedback on how well you're pronouncing words, other language apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one-month language course. Think about the cost of a one-hour private tutoring session. But with Rosetta Stone, you enjoy a lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. And right now we have a special offer for you guys that is 50% off. That is lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off, a complete steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's visit rosettastone.com slash today. 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10am to 5pm Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Today's guest studied law at Trinity College Dublin and practiced as a solicitor for a number of years before completing a master's in law at the University of Pennsylvania. She has worked in advocacy for a number of human rights focused NGOs and lives in Dublin with her husband and a lot of books. It's my pleasure to welcome Rosemary Hennigan. Rosemary, welcome to the show. Thanks, Bianca. Lovely to be here. It's wonderful to have you. Now, for our listeners, we are discussing Rosemary's book called The Favourites. It is her sophomore novel, so that is the term we use for when an author brings out their second novel, just to read you a bit of the back copy so you can understand what the book is about. Most students would kill to be accepted into the prestigious law and literature cohort at Franklin University. But for Jesse Mooney, enrollment in the course is about more than elite campus status, rigorous thought and professional connections. It's a chance to get close to charismatic professor Jay Crane and take him down. 
From the moment she discovered their secret relationship, Jessie's been convinced Crane is to blame for the events leading to her sister's death. Still haunted by their last email exchange, you know what you did, she'll cross any line to hold him accountable. But when Jessie finally earns Crane's trust in the coveted position as one of his favorites, attracting the other students' envy and suspicion, the truth becomes darkly twisted. Is it justice Jessie craves or revenge? What does she stand to lose if she gets her way? Shimmering with tension, this provocative novel explores the nature of obsession, the inequities of power, and the ways that anger, desire, and love reveal the best and the worst of us. Right, so I just want to read you a tiny bit. I I was going to read you a few pages from chapter one, but I can give you an overview and then just read one particular paragraph. This is written in the first person from Jessie's POV, and she begins by saying, setting up the scene for the very first time she saw Jay Crane standing with her sister at the Trinity Arts block after class. She has a conversation with her sister about who he is and the sister says he's just one of her professors and I'll read from here. It seems so obvious now, so hard to imagine events unfolding in any other way, but back then there was ignorance, there was bliss. I didn't yet know it, but we would never be the same, not once Professor Jay Crane entered our lives. What chance did Audrey have against him? Nobody had ever told her that the word of a man like Crane was not gospel, that he was no God, that his influence could be dangerous, that he could hurt her. Nobody ever told her to be careful of men who dazzle and then withdraw, leaving a wasteland of human wreckage in their wake. Nobody told her of the darkness that can lurk behind an easy smile and a few kind words, and by the time she learned it for herself, the damage was done. There's no fixing it now. I should say that what follows is not a confession. It's not an exercise in atonement or motivated by guilt. If I consulted a lawyer, she would tell me not to write it down at all. It could be used against me. Sometimes my finger hovers over the backspace key, ready to let the cursor chase these words away into nothingness. But always in that moment, just before I give in to that compulsion, I think of Audrey again and I hesitate. It was her story first before I made it mine. When you came seeking answers, I didn't know what to say, because the truth is not an easy thing. I don't even know if I can tell the right and the wrongs of it anymore. Every day, more women are speaking up, and as they do, my silence weighs more heavily on me. There have been so many lies that telling the truth now feels like an act of bravery, a leap of faith, sunlight burning away the haze. So here it is, an honest history of what happened. Insofar as certain events may have Followed from my decision to enroll at Franklin University, I can hardly be held responsible for that. The only guilty mind involved was Crane's. What happened to him was his own fault, but I don't need to tell you that. You'll see for yourself. Dun, dun, dun. You have to read on. So when we talk about the heavy lifting that the first chapter has to do in terms of planting curiosity seeds, getting the reader curious, getting them interested, you did all of that. What I want to discuss now, Rosemary, is in terms of setting up this kind of narrative, which is Jessie's account that she's telling to, and I don't want to have spoilers up front. So up front, we don't know who Jessie is telling this account to, who this you person is. And by the end, we then establish who this person is. Can you take us through the intentionality in setting up the narrative this way? Was it always going to be this way? Was it an evolution of the piece? How did this come to be? Yeah, I mean, so 
I think what I wanted to do in the beginning is invite the reader to judge Jessie. So the whole time she's kind of laying out what happened, she's being honest about it. She's kind of interrogating herself almost through this person that she's addressing. And so everything in the narrative is her laying it out and saying, I'm not sure if I was right here. I'm not sure if I was wrong. I, I don't know if I should have gone further. I don't know if I should have held back. And I really wanted her to just be honest and upfront in that with the reader, because I think otherwise it's very easy to just judge her and just judge the situation. And I think a lot of times these days we kind of we, we have a tendency to rush to judgment a lot with social media and with things happening very quickly in the news. It's, it's this constant rush towards a judgment. And I think it was kind of a bravery in a character to step back and say, no, I want you to judge me and I want you to be my, my jury and to be my judge and to allow me to grow through your, your vision of me. And so I wanted her to direct it towards the reader. And I spent a long time wondering if I could do that in the abstract or if I needed ultimately there to be someone that she's talking to. And so I would say I kind of I tested it both ways. And at first, I kind of I left it wide open, just the reader. She's talking directly to the reader. And then that felt a little bit too uh, meta in a way. It felt a little bit too divorced from reality. And because the story goes, it does become quite rooted in a kind of a realistic vision of how things might have gone. It just began to feel wrong with the tone of the story. And so I did introduce the person that she's ultimately talking to. And so then I had to kind of go back and make sure that that fit and that everything kind of came together. And it did. It situated it more firmly in that time as well, because it is kind of a, a book that is based in a time and a date and a place and a context. And so that kind of worked well as well. It also created a motivation for her, a reason why she's sitting down at this point in time to investigate herself and to ask herself, was I right to do this? Was I wrong to do this? What were the moral and the ethical implications of it? Which is really what the book is kind of about, as well as being a, a thriller and a mystery. It's also a question of what is right and wrong in this situation. Yeah, this is the kind of book for our listeners that requires the reader to do a ton of heavy lifting. There are books that for the reader, you just sit back and you are there for the ride you are entertained, it's a diversion, maybe you're theorizing like who the murderer is or what's going to happen next, but it doesn't require you to constantly be checking in with yourself saying, how do I feel about this? I felt a certain way, but that feels a bit icky. Should I have felt that way, etc.? So this is the kind of book that you pick up when you really want to question yourself as much as you are experiencing a story. And Rosemary, that was very clearly your intention, yes? Yeah, definitely. I mean, those are the kind of books that I, I like and that I think are ones that kind of stay with you. And for me, it keeps me reading. I want to be kind of led along with the plot and with the intrigue, but I also want to be chewing over something afterwards. So when I close the book, I want to still be thinking about it and kind of taking that world with me. And somewhere in the back of my mind, that world still exists. Those are the kind of books I love the most. And I felt, especially with this sort of a topic, it looks at gender, it looks at justice, it looks at privilege. And those are these really big, meaty topics that we're all sort of grappling with all the time at the moment. But there often isn't really a place to do that, that again, isn't very quick and very reactionary and limited characters within which to do it. And so I suppose I was looking for a place to explore some of that that was kind of more spacious. And I think novels give us that. They can entertain and they can distract and they can keep us gripped on the bus, but they can also kind of be something that we take away and we think about long afterwards and we reflect on the themes and we think about the characters. And, and I personally think it's a good thing to be changing your mind as you go, to be kind of adding in new pieces of information. And I think partly it's the legal training as well, because bringing this into a law school meant that it was in some ways I was sort of doing what 
how you how you learn the law, which is to take these hypothetical cases and then to twist some of the facts and say, okay, the court said X or Y in this case, but if we change this fact, now what should the court do? Now what does justice look like? And I wanted to give the reader that experience as well. So you're very much brought into the classroom and you're very much there. In that sense, it's a true campus novel. <laughs> you are at university more or less. And so it's inviting you to kind of engage on that level as well. So very intentional, yeah. Yeah, and, and besides it sort of being commentary on the law, I also feel like it's there's social commentary on our times because, as you said earlier, people love making these snap decisions. It's like you see something on the news, you see somebody post something, and suddenly you issue a response to it. And often the response is black or white, but things are so nuanced. There is so much nuance in so much of life that they are not just simply right or wrong, black or white, this person's right, this person's wrong. Um, and yet we're almost at the point where if something can't be crystallized down to a meme or to a little graphic, people like can't deal with it. It's almost like, you know, they, they need this buffet of life condensed to one little finger snack and that's what that's what they want. And yet in this book, you show that things are not that simple. So for our listeners, can you just give us a sense a bit of how Jesse is approaching this in term? I, I don't want you to give away spoilers, but just her mindset as she comes into this, because so much of this book, you, you go through it and you think, oh my God, this is entrapment. What she is doing is entrapment. And is that justifiable under the circumstances? So take us through the nuances of the story. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I think she goes into it she's grieving and she is lonely and she's struggling with that sense of having this death that has happened that she's enduring and she's trying to make sense of it and she's looking around for something to blame it gives her a sense of righteousness and I think a strident kind of anger which can be really intoxicating when you're feeling it you're kind of you know you're you're sure that you feel this way and you can kind of launch into those reactions and into that kind of emotional reaction in a way that I think sometimes can drag you too far one way or another and it can be quite hard to come back from and so she approaches this very single-mindedly and she knows where she stands and she knows what she's doing and she's incredibly calculating and she's thought it all through and the more the closer that she gets towards her goal the more she starts to question it and the more it starts to kind of reverberate back at her the more that she sees someone who isn't just this kind of villain in her head anymore but a person and she'd really rather not see him as a person it would be a lot easier for her if she didn't but she can't deny that he is a human being and that the, ex the experience of being human is more complex than she would like to allow in that kind of anger and in that grief and I think she's kind of coming to terms with it she's coming to terms with herself she's allowing for that nuance to come in and so her arc is she starts extremely strong and she then comes to a point where she starts questioning herself and then she reaches a point where she can't really continue necessarily um, the way that she was. And she really has to question herself and say, is this really what I'm going to do? And is this really, is it right? Is it justice? The thing I wanted to kind of add in there then was to make it really difficult for her because there is no good answer in this case. And that's because a lot of the times when it comes to these kind of crimes and these situations, it's very, very difficult. The courts don't have a good response. And outside of that, we don't really have a good response as a society yet either. And so grappling with that, I think, is really difficult. And I think we started it in 2016, but I don't think we've reached a conclusion or an answer. And the courts, you know, certainly in Ireland have kind of amended things slightly and amended procedures, but it's still incredibly difficult. And the statistics bear that out. And so the question is, well, if you can't go that route, if you can't go the kind of straight formal legal route, 
is it justice to let that kind of lie there and to allow this man to continue unchallenged, unchecked? Or in that situation, is somebody justified to say, well, I'm going to have to do something about this because I can't let it lie. And I suppose that's the, the underlying theme of it. It's something as a lawyer that I think those gaps and those big kind of chasms are what have always interested me. It's why I kind of moved from practice kind of as a, as a lawyer before the courts, that sort of thing, into more policy, which is more about kind of legal change and legal reform because the law isn't always right and it's incredibly hard to change it. And so I kind of feel for me as a writer and as a lawyer, bringing those two, those two things together in this novel was brilliant because it allowed me to kind of see, well, okay, hypothetically, if you go down this, this road, what does it look like? And ultimately, I think for me as you know, the person, because everybody's perfectly entitled to judge Jesse on their own terms. And my judgment is really systems should work. And we should find a way to make them work because nobody should be in a situation that she finds herself in and neither should her sister have ever been in that situation. Yeah. And in this class, they have these really detailed sort of discussions about ethics, et cetera, et cetera. And some of the questions are, can the law be fair to women when the laws, most of the laws were created by men? And there's this examination of, we think these laws are these objective things, but how can they be when they were created by men. And there's an exploration there as well that that comes through that really got me thinking there as well. Yeah, I think it's something that's kind of, I definitely, there weren't questions that were asked, say, when I was doing my undergraduate, which was only 2007 to 2011. So it's not, it's still fairly recent. And they weren't really questions that were being asked. They're starting to be asked now, which I think is very good. But prior to that, there was kind of an assumption that, well, the system is a system and it's built on objectivity and on impartiality. And the victims are very much kept, you know, to the side of that. It's the state that prosecutes the accused and it's all about the rights of the accused. And I think in the last little while, we've kind of, we've said maybe as more women have, have, have started practicing, it's become much more common to see women in the legal system. In Ireland, it's now 50-50 between men and women as qualified lawyers, which is incredible. And I think has brought about some of these changes where people are kind of saying, well, that's all well and good, but this isn't working. And there's no other area of the criminal law where the statistics are so bad. You know, I mean, if people were being murdered right, left and center and we weren't able to prosecute, there would be uproar. And I think it's just that we are so kind of used to things as they are that we just accept them because they're the status quo and that's the, the water that we swim in more or less. And I think questioning it is hugely important. It's the first thing we do before we get to a change. And I know we're, we, we have been starting to do that kind of as a society, when it comes to the law, it's much slower, I think, in practice to actually bring about those changes. And in part, it is those reasons that I raise in the novel about the nuances of it and how difficult it is. The evidential burdens and then the courtroom burdens and then the fairness of the accused as well. It creates huge difficulties. But I think kind of having these conversations and really engaging with it beyond just lawyers, but the two things together, the kind of non-lawyers and lawyers having those conversations is hugely important. Yeah, and something that I was hugely impressed by visiting Ireland recently is there was an ad on television, which I was just blown away by. And it was like, if a woman has sent you an intimate picture of herself, if you even threaten to use that against her, if you even threaten to share that picture, never mind, actually go ahead and use it, you can actually be prosecuted for that. And I think that is like head and shoulders above most countries when it comes to this. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's a new development. And in part, it, it is because we have some very strong female representation at the moment in, uh, in the Dáil, in the Parliament in Ireland. Not nearly enough. There's only 20% of politicians who are women. But 
the ones who are there have been really strong on some of these. And in part, that is because of the Me Too movement and the conversations that were kind of happening and then the, the pressures and the campaigns which followed from it. So we've had quite a lot of social change in the last few years. And I think that sense of possibility and of hope and of change is something which Ireland has had at the same time as other countries and maybe been going the opposite direction. And so I think in part, one of the reasons why I wanted to write this book the way that I did and kind of looking at these themes and everything is because I do have a sense of hope and optimism about it. I do think that things can change, but I think finding ways to have productive conversations is probably important. And when you think about novels and their functions, in one sense, they're for entertainment, for sure, and to kind of tell a good story. I think that's like for me, certainly as a reader, I love a good story. I want to be entertained and I want you know the author to do a lot of the work for me in terms of making me turn the pages. At the same time, I think I want intellectually to be nourished. And I don't personally, I don't really find that a lot on social media. I kind of find it's people sniping and whatever. And we've got, gotten to a stage with it now where I just think we're all a little bit overwhelmed with the noise. And I think finding those kind of channels through the noise is is really important and so it's something I think novels can do and um, contemporary novels can do they can kind of just give you a chance to stop and to think about them and it's there's a, a long tradition of that in the novel and so it's one of the, the reasons why I wanted to do it this way not just kind of in the political realm but through kind of introducing people to a character and saying okay well here is her context here are the situations that she's facing she has to make choices within this what do you think about that? Yeah. And something I want to chat about as well is intentionality. So for our listeners, Rosemary could have set this up where it was a lot more clear cut. She could have made Audrey a much more clear victim. She could have chosen to have Audrey's POV in the novel. We could have actually have seen what really happened between Audrey and Jay, as opposed to Jesse trying to piece it together based on diary entries and based on text messages, etc., There's a lot that's missing from Audrey's account. Audrey never mentions Jay's wife and Jesse's sitting there trying to figure out why that never never happened. And so Rosemary made very, very intentional decisions to make the story in terms of who's right, who's wrong, what really happened, quite grey, which again makes the reader have to dig deeper to go, okay, I don't have all the evidence here and I don't know that Jesse has all the evidence here. Is this right? Is this wrong? Which really mirrors, like you were saying, Rosemary, the legal battle in court for women if they need to come to court to prove these kinds of things. Yeah, exactly. And I think in terms of the stories that have been told in the last few years, a lot of times there is a clear, a clear situation and we see it really clearly. And so we still struggle to get justice in those situations, but those are kind of the, the hard edge of the end of the wedge, if you know what I mean. So they are the ones that ultimately should resolve themselves and they're the easier, more clear-cut cases. Unfortunately, the vast majority of cases that are, affect people are much less clear. And so I could have, I kind of, I could have made it easier for readers, but I wanted every time, every time you felt a sense of, oh, this is what's going on. I wanted to complicate it because we still have to deal with those cases. We still have to have an approach which works for them. And so it was very intentional to do that. And the other reason I wanted uh, Audrey to be kind of, you know, as the victim to be sort of secondary to Jesse's kind of vision of it is we place a huge pressure on victims to be the ones to step forward and to be the ones to kind of speak out about their experience. And some victims do and can and feel very liberated by that, but a lot of victims don't. And I think there has to be, you know, we have to look at other ways for these resolutions to happen that don't just place all of that pressure on someone who's already traumatized and has already gone through a horrific experience. It's also, I think, kind of more realistic in terms of 
the way in which some people experience trauma, which isn't kind of very public. Oftentimes people freeze, they shut down, they go into themselves and they don't tell you what happened. They don't provide you with the evidence. And in those situations, it can be almost impossible for there to be any resolution. And so I kind of I wanted to look at the really hard, nutty ones, the kind of naughty ones, not nutty ones, <laughs> the naughtier ones, because I think um, just given my background, I felt like it was something that as a writer I could bring that was distinct and that was a little bit different. And that would kind of push those stories on a little bit beyond just the, the more black and white ones, which I think are, have been kind of just a story that I think has been told and told well. But I kind of wanted to do something slightly different. Yeah. And I mean, in Canada, in the last few years, we've had, we had a high profile case here, a celebrity, Gian Gameshi, and a lot of the victims of the assault afterwards were in touch with him afterwards in ways in which it almost seemed like they were not trying to ingratiate themselves to him, but they reached out in ways that many people afterwards were like, well, if he did this to you, why would you possibly reach out to him and, and try and make nice with him, for example, if he really honestly assaulted you, you wouldn't do this kind of thing. And it's like you say, the pressures then put on the victim to explain this kind of behavior post-trauma, which is absolutely ridiculous. The last question that I want to ask you, because we're going to be running out of time, is I love the intentionality as well in terms of placing this against the backdrop of the Trump-Clinton election. And we have it on the night, a lot of things come to a head on the actual night that the ballots are counted and it is determined that Trump has won the election. You really could have set this book anytime in the last however many years. Why specifically choosing that historical backdrop? Yeah, I mean, I think the first reason is I was there. Um, I was there in Philadelphia in 2016. And so I was studying at a law school there. And so I, I had these kind of memories and I had very much my own emotional reaction to that and how it kind of the feelings that it brought up and the questions that it brought up and the kind of the surprise and the shock that kind of rippled through the room and what that meant. I also felt like there are certain inflection points in history, certain moments that you kind of notice. And I think that was one of those moments before the Me Too movement where there was this kind of the beginning of a sense of, you know, actually women don't feel heard, feel as if what seemed obvious, like a the first woman being elected as president suddenly didn't happen. And instead you had this other very, very different character be elected. And the, the shock of that and the ripple effect of that, I think, is what kind of did galvanize the response. Like Jessie, in, in terms of her actions and what she does and the complications of them, I think it was, I think it probably would have been different if it was now versus then. But I suppose for me, as a writer and as a woman, I was kind of looking back on an earlier stage in my life, kind of even before 2016, before that year, as an undergraduate, as a young woman in the world, kind of going for the first time trying to understand things and understand people and personalities and all of that. I was thinking a lot about that, which is all at kind of a pre-2016, pre-2014 kind of timing. And so a lot of the kind of updates that we've had since and developments that we have since weren't how I kind of experienced university the first time and all of that. And so thinking of of Audrey and who she was and the scenario that she was in, I, I did very much want it to be pre-Me Too. But I think for Jesse, it had to be on the cusp. It had to be sort of there is this moment, there is this galvanizing sense around her that she can do this and that this is this is something that she's right about. And it's that kind of sense of anger and fury that's unleashed in her that kind of propels her to do what she does in terms of leaving Dublin and going to Philadelphia. I think she needed that to kind of be the wind in her sails. And then I think a lot of a lot of what was kind of 
the emotions and the, the feelings that were dragged up by that election were reflected as well in the book. And it kind of, it, it, it mirrored the themes of the book really, really well. And so, yeah, I just, I felt like pinning it down to that particular point in time for that reason. Yeah. So for our listeners, the intentionality in terms of when you set a book, if you're setting it at 2008, why does it need to be 2008 as opposed to now? What is the political backdrop? How does that affect the character's emotions and what's happening on the page? So all of that needs to be intentional as well. One last thing we have time for, Rosemary, is we're always saying on the podcast to our listeners who are emerging writers is how subjective this whole process is. It's so easy to feel so awful when an agent turns down your work and for you to think, oh my God, it's the writing that's terrible. It's the work that's terrible. And we often say it just takes one yes. It takes the right person to view it. And we're always saying it's so subjective. And when I'm about to interview an author, I'll make all my notes and then I'll go in and have a look at the professional reviews. And what happened with the favorites is the exact same thing that happened with my debut novel is that I got a starred review from Publishers Weekly and a complete slating from Kirkus who were like, this book is awful. It's terrible. It does nothing it's meant to do. So can you speak a bit about, about that as well in terms of your experience of the subjectivity of it? Absolutely. I mean, first of all, it's great to know that there is more than just me <laughs> in that experience because that was uh, that was an odd one, I will say. Luckily, perhaps I saw the star review first. And I was very disbelieving of it. I was kind of like, wow, I can't believe this has happened. This is, you know, am I sure this has happened? And then I would say maybe 10 minutes later, <laughs> I saw the second review and I was like, huh, <laughs> right. Okay. So the same book, two totally different visions of it. I suppose, yeah, it really does just go to show that these things are enormously subjective. It is it is something that I do find difficult because it does feel like there's a moving standard all the time. And so, you know, whenever you're writing a book that there are certain limitations to any story, you know, whether it's point of view or it's the way that you decide to kind of frame the narrative or the structure that you adopt, there's limitations to all of it. And you always know that when you choose one way, there's someone else who would have preferred the other way. And so there's no way to get that right. It's just this constant kind of balance of I'm choosing to kind of satisfy these readers who maybe reflect my vision of what I what I like in a book and I know that I'm leaving behind these other readers there's nothing really you can do about that in terms of reviews and even just kind of readers and what they like and everything I think I try to be as positive as I can about it and just to say it reflects the diversity of opinions that are out there in the world and that that's a good thing there's something for everyone I do find it is funny <laughs> where some people absolutely love it and some people absolutely hate it and you're kind of like wow okay <laughs> that is you know it's a strange experience it's a real seesaw but I think it just tells you that there's there's something for everyone out there at the end of the day. And I think this is my second novel. And the experience of the kind of the first two have taught me more than anything that there will be people who don't like it, but your opinion is just as valid. And if you like it and it's for you and it does what you wanted to do, then you've achieved what you wanted. That's not always the case. Sometimes you kind of finish a piece of work and you go, oh, like it just doesn't really come together or you have your doubts. And then when you read a review that kind of picks up on those, you go, oh, I knew it. But sometimes you say, do you know what? I don't agree. And this is what the book is. And I understand that it, it wasn't for you or there are aspects of it that you would have done differently, but I actually don't regret it. That's that's what I wanted to do. And then I think you take all of that and you move on to the next book as, as fast as you can. <laughs> I love that advice because really all we have control over as authors is writing the best damn book we possibly can, writing something we're proud of. Once it goes out into the world, we lose control over that narrative because suddenly the reader enters into the narrative and is in conversation with the book. But 
I wanted to highlight this for our listeners so that when you hear back from an agent who really didn't like your work, there is going to be someone out there who really, really freaking liked the exact same book. So, so don't take that kind of um, criticism personally. Rosemary, thank you so much for joining us. For our listeners, we're linking to the book on our bookshop.org affiliate page. Buy the book there. You'll support Rosemary. You'll support an independent bookstore and you support the podcast at the same time. Thank you so much, Bianca. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Great news. The beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers? Some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line. Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live, cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at CC Lira Agent. That's at C E C E L Y R A Agent. I hope to see you there.